from Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. This is what the Lord says. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And this is what the man said. This one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she, has been, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife. They become one flesh. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we, you are the infinite personal creator, and all of your creation is good. Through your creation, you form us, and you shaped us, and you've given us an identity in which to grow in the likeness of you. And as men and women, we cannot image you apart from one another. For as we become one, as we unite together as a church and sing with one voice, we share and show your goodness. So Lord, may the preaching of your word unite us this morning. You have created us in such a way to image you perfectly and uniquely amongst all other creation in this world. So speak through Pastor Ryan powerfully that we may be humbled, when we may receive joy and grace and ultimately hope that we are made in your image and you are good to do so. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Good morning, Christ community. We didn't say it earlier, but you are welcome to turn to a neighbor and give them a wave. We're still not shaking hands as of now, but feel free to look around you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. We've been steadily making our way through this book, and we find ourselves at the very beginning of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This morning's text is well known in some regards, but not always for the right reasons. This is a passage, though, that is vital for marriages, vital for helping us to understand our roles as husbands and wives. And I'm convinced that what we need today for our marriages is a whole lot more of what God says concerning them and a whole lot less of what the world throws at us. And on a personal level, if I can say this, I desire God's truth for my wife. I desire God's truth for my sisters in Christ. And I desire God's truth for my daughters who are growing up in my home. I don't want them, and I don't want you, believing the lies of the world. So we're going to take this Sunday and, Lord willing, next Sunday to look at these verses that speak to husbands and wives. So the overarching title for these two weeks is A Christ-Exalting Marriage, and specifically today we see The Christ-Exalting Wife. And as I said earlier, this is a well-known text, but not always for the right reasons. You see, our culture tells us, and particularly you women, and particularly even more narrowly, you wives, that what I'm going to read to you today is bigoted, or hateful, or sexist, or misogynist, or that was then, and this is now, and so the list goes on. But I want to think about that argument from the culture from a Christian perspective for a moment. Rather than these verses being hurtful words, I think that they are actually healing words because they set us free to live out God's good intentions for us as husbands and as wives. And as people of the book, as those who uh, understand the Bible to be God's word, those who believe that God has revealed himself through the pages of Scripture and specifically through his son Jesus Christ, 
and that what he has revealed about himself is to be the rightful creator and sustainer of all things, and that means the rightful creator and sustainer of us, the very God who from the beginning of creation instituted the marriage covenant between a man and a woman. He designed it, he orchestrated it, and he ordained it. Then I would expect that that very God has something to say concerning our marriages, has something to say about how marriage is to be lived out between a man and a woman in a fallen world. And not only just lived out, but to flourish and to be a testimony to the world of his glory. And praise God he does. He does have something to say. So when our culture and our society tells you women that something your creator has said concerning how you are to live as a God-fearing wife in this world is wrong-headed or archaic or it holds you back in life, I pray that you wouldn't buy that lie. I pray instead that you would say with Paul from Romans 3, let God be true and every man a liar. That is, let God's purpose for me be true, his love for me be true, his design for me be true, his commands for me be true, and everything else that the culture or society is telling you about who you are or who you ought to be, let it be a lie. Don't give in. Now to my friends who are here this morning and you are single, you are not married but maybe desiring to one day be married, or you're single and you're gifted by God to be so, or you are widowed or you're divorced, Maybe the temptation for you this morning might be to check out. This passage is only speaking to husbands and wives. Well, if you want to be a husband or a wife one day, then you better have a good understanding of what God's Word says concerning that particular role for you. But also, for the rest of us, there are three corporate reasons, three church-wide reasons that you should not check out and that you should listen attentively. Let me give them to you real quick. Three reasons this passage is important for all of us. First, even if you are not married in this life, the Bible tells us that marriage is a greater picture of Christ and the church. Therefore, as a Christ follower, you should have a desire to better understand that picture and your place within it. Secondly, what is said of wives and husbands in the marriage passages often informs us, at least in part, of how to better live as Christian men and women within a fallen world. All of us should desire to grow in that respect. And last, we are all called to love, support, and disciple one another. And this means all types of people. So you might be single, and yet you still might be discipling a husband or a wife. I personally have been most helped in my marriage and my role as a husband through the teaching of a pastor who has never even been married. God's truth is still truth regardless of who is speaking it. And so far, if I can remind you where we are contextually, so far what we've seen from Peter in this section is that he has something to say to us concerning our relationship, really our witness to an unbelieving world. And so the two verses that are really the heading of this entire section that we've been working through uh, for about the past month is found in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Allow me to read it to you. Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and as exiles. Think on that for a moment. You are a stranger and an exile in this world. You are in a fallen world, he's telling them, and this is not your home. And so how you live, how you conduct yourself is a witness to this unbelieving world. I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. 
conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. So then Peter, after this section, he works through what does it look like then for a Christian to submit to the governing authorities. And we looked at that about a month ago. Then he says, what does it look like for a Christian servant to submit to a master, even an unjust master? So we looked at that as well. And now we turn to what it looks like for submission and authority within the home. So if you have your Bible or a device, 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live, when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothing, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Verse 5, for in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is true and that it speaks to us exactly where we are. I pray simply that by your spirit that you would convict us where we need convicting and encourage us where we need encouraging. May you be glorified. May Christ be magnified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. My friends, with our time this morning, I want to draw out four characteristics from this passage of a Christ-exalting wife. Four characteristics of a Christ-exalting wife. The first one is going to be the longest. First one is this, submission to the glory of God. Submission to the glory of God. Now, when Peter informs wives that they are to submit, there are some important things that we need to look at. The Greek word here is hupotasso, and it means to submit or subject oneself to someone or to something. But notice, for instance, what the text says. Submit to your own husbands. It does not say that women are to submit to men in general or wives are to submit to all husbands, but submit to your own husband. So this morning, I want to tell us what submission, biblical submission, is and is not. We're actually going to take that in reverse order. So first, four things, and I know that there are many, but four things that biblical submission is not. First, biblical submission is not idolizing your husband. Biblical submission is not idolizing your husband. The entirety of this section in 1 Peter assumes that allegiance to Christ is prioritized over and against any other human allegiance. This means, wives, that you will not agree with everything your husband says. I hear that amen. amen. Thank you. As Christians, though, we seek to align our lives with everything that Christ says. But in Peter's example here, the wife is a believer and the husband is not. She has one view of who gives her ultimate authority. Who is the ultimate authority? Who gives her ultimate reality? And he's going to have another. But Peter calls the wife here to be submissive without undermining her primary allegiance to Christ. To be submissive without following her husband into sin. So women, you are not called to idolize your husband. That is a freeing thing. You are called to glorify Christ in all that you do. 
And if I could, I'd like to say a word real quick to those of you who might have grown up in more conservative homes or where passages like this were often used as the grounding for emotional or physical abuse. That is completely and utterly horrible and wrong, and it is sin. If you are experiencing abuse in the marriage, if there is domestic violence in your home, then call the police. Call us. We will do all that we can to help you. But these passages should never be justified for turning a blind eye to abuse and violence. So biblical submission is not idolizing your husband. Secondly, biblical submission is not blindly following your husband. Upon marriage, this might be a shocker, upon marriage, the wife does not leave her brain nor her will at the wedding. She has independent thoughts. Notice, though, the wife to which Peter is writing here. She has heard the gospel. She's thought through the implications for herself. She's embraced Christ as Lord and now seeks to faithfully live out her life as his disciple. She thought for herself. She acted for herself and will continue to do so. As someone who is married to a strong-willed woman, I wholeheartedly affirm this very truth. Laura is strong. She is strong-willed. My wife's nickname amongst her family is the general. She likes to be in control of things. I remember whenever we were dating and I went out to visit them, her grandfather uh, pulled me aside at the beginning. He said, half joking, half serious, do you know what you're getting into? (laughs) And I do. Her mind and her will are strong, and that's a beautiful thing because she will speak her mind to me. I don't want somebody mindless, someone who blindly follows me. We can dialogue deeply about things, even disagree over the right course of action, but she is always respected and submitted to my leadership in the home. So it is not a blind following. She is aware. She has excellent input and advice and concerns, and that's a good thing. And men, we have to understand this as well. When a wife gives you pushback, don't you dare throw it in her face that she's not submitting. That is completely against what this text is talking about. She will have opinions. She will have pushback. But notice at the end of the discussion what the posture of her heart is. It takes immense maturity for her to say, I disagree, but I'm willing to follow your lead in this. So wives who submit in no way give up their intelligence nor their wills. Third, biblical submission is not avoiding opportunities or efforts to influence your husband. Biblical submission is not avoiding opportunities or efforts to influence your husband. A Christian wife should try to influence her unbelieving husband to become a Christian. Likewise, the Christian wife will want to lovingly encourage her husband to become more Christ-like in both the way he leads and how he acts as a man. So when my wife points out an area or an instance of sin in my life, I find that often to be a catalyst of growth for me. I desire then to mature and lead her better than I have been before. It is good for her to to desire to try to aid in my sanctification. And wives, you have to be willing to embrace that. And you also have to be willing to embrace when your husband tries to aid in your sanctification. We need a spirit of humility in this. Lastly, biblical submission is not contrary to our equality in Christ. In fact, as you study the scriptures, we see that submission in regard to authority is often consistent with equality in importance, worth, dignity, and honor. Equality in those things. Think of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who was subject to both his earthly parents and to God the Father. He is of greater worth and honor than his earthly parents and of equal worth and honor with his godly father. So submission in no way implies inferiority, either spiritually or in worth. And think on again, again, who is Peter writing to here? Who is Peter encouraging to submit? The very woman who is married to an unbeliever. The very woman who is infinitely more spiritually mature because she knows Christ. And the beautiful thing about this passage, though, is that it was just as countercultural then as it is today. Today, we don't like the submission and the authority language in the passage, but we really do like the co-heir language in verse 7. But back then, they didn't have a problem with the submission and authority, but the co-heir language, that would have been a stopping point for sure. Men and, e- men and women are equal? Co-heirs, you say? See, it's teaching us We cannot simply pick and choose what parts of a passage we think are good or bad or do speak to us or don't speak to us. God's word transcends all cultures and challenges us in varying ways exactly where we are. So that is four things that biblical submission is not. So what is biblical submission? What's the other side of the coin? What's a proper view? Let me give you a definition. Biblical submission is the divine calling of a wife to value and affirm her husband's leadership and to uphold it through her God-given gifts. I'm going to read that again. Biblical submission is the divine calling of a wife to value and affirm her husband's leadership and to uphold it through her God-given gifts. I love what one pastor writes concerning this. He says, submission is an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and you lead with love. I don't flourish when you are passive and I have to make sure the family works. But the attitude of Christian submission also says, it grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and you want to take me with you. You know I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. On the contrary, I flourish most when I can respond creatively and joyfully to your lead, but I can't follow you into sin. As much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage, Christ is my king. This is important for us to understand. So what has happened for the past 2,000 years and even further back after that? What has happened since Genesis 3 in our marriages? Well, with the fall of humanity there, we now have a disposition of sin in our own lives that will cause us to rebel on both sides, husband and wife, on what it looks like to live out our God-given callings. So today we have men who try to lead passively, which is an oxymoron. We're going to see that next week. And likewise, we have women who fail to submit through valuing and affirming their husband's leadership and therefore are in the same vein as a passive husband. So because of sin, we rebel. We as men often fail to lead, and the sinful tendency of many women is to often not to want to submit. But what's important for a Christian wife to realize and to remember as she's going through this text, as she's praying through it, is that because of the fall, it will not be your natural instinct and in how you want to relate to your husband, but it will take a deliberate decision. Daily, you will have to fight for this. It'll take determination. I love what one Christian woman wrote. She said, submission is not just something that happens. Surprising, right? As a wife, you have to decide to be submissive. You have to be willing to be submissive. Every day, I am challenged as to whether I'm willing to submit to my husband or actively rebel against him. 
It is up to me to decide whether I'm going to nag, complain, or criticize, or whether I'm going to wholeheartedly support him and have the wisdom to bite my tongue. And if I can remind you what this first point is entitled, it's submission to the glory of God. So this first characteristic then not only has to do with the role of a wife, but the glory that God receives when we live out our intended roles. And look at how Peter structures his command in the text. He gives us a biblical principle, wives submit to your husband, and then he gives us an immediate reason or immediate example, so that they may be one without a word by the way their wives lives. Excuse me, by the way their wives live. So what is Peter getting at here? Is he telling the wife who is a believer not to evangelize the husband who is an unbeliever? I don't think so. This isn't an argument for not sharing the gospel. It's not an argument for not talking about Jesus Christ as the only way to be reconciled to God and instead just trying to do good deeds. Even Peter is going to say later on in this very chapter, chapter 3, that we need to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. No, these women had come to Christ and their husbands had not. Maybe their husband had heard the gospel with them but then rejected it. Or maybe another wife had evangelized this wife. We don't know. But to be sure, these wives were telling their unbelieving husbands the gospel. They had proclaimed it to them, and now Peter says they are to live it out, because the way that you live it out will become beautiful right before their eyes. It will make the gospel beautiful. Once the husband then knows the gospel, has heard it from you, then it is the conduct of your life that makes the difference, is what Peter is instructing. And what is that conduct? What is the conduct for a wife? He tells us, a pure and reverent life, Peter says, a life lived in gospel truth and sincerity, a life that is markedly different than what a worldly wife looks like in her relationship with her husband. And the word reverent here in the text is actually phobo. You might remember this in the Greek. It typically means fear. In other words, Your fear, wives, not of your husband, but your reverent fear of the Lord, is what Pastor Jeff talked about a few weeks back. Your reverent fear of the Lord is what is continuing to proclaim the gospel in your conduct to your husband. So that is the first characteristic of a Christ-exalting wife. We have three more, and they overlap and interrelate, and I promise they'll go quicker. Secondly, an adornment which never fades. First, we saw submission to the glory of God. Secondly, an adornment which never fades. Verse 3, don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So Peter first instructed the, the Christian women then to submit out of a reverence to God, and now he tells them how to live out their reverence in a fallen world. What does it look like? Well, the command first comes in a negative form. Do not let your beauty, wives, Christian women, do not let your adornment, do not let what makes you beautiful in God's sight and in your husband's sight, that is the essence of who you are, consist simply of outward things. I say essence because the word here for adornment or beauty in this verse is actually cosmos. It's one of the only times it's not translated world. So what he's saying is, Christian woman, don't let your world, don't be the essence of who you are. Don't let your adornment simply consist of what we can all see on the outside. That should not be your focus. There is so much more to beauty. 
than looks and appearance and vanity. And for this particular culture, and really ours today, not much has changed. The emphasis, though, was on that type of beauty, the external beauty. So back then, they had an elaborate braiding of hair that was deemed as fanciful. Well-off women strove to keep up with the latest fashions and often wore gaudy adornments of varying jewelry in order to draw attention to themselves. So what is Peter getting at here, though, for the Christian woman? How is she different? Are you not to fix your hair? Wear any jewelry? Well, there are some holiness traditions that have interpreted that way, but I don't think that's what he's saying because then one could argue that that extends to clothing and none of us want to go there. So, no, what Peter is saying is that what is beautiful about a woman of God, what is beautiful about a godly wife, is not what is seen on the outside, but what is on the inside. What is your character like towards your husband, towards others? That's the heart of the question. So then the reasoning goes, why does Peter mention the external first? Why does he say that first? Why does he give the negative form first? Do not let your appearance be like this. Well, I think some wives, probably in uh, this cultural context, but honestly even today, might be influenced by the culture to think that they need to work on being pretty enough. Maybe if I'm pretty enough, then my husband will listen to me. Or for that context, maybe if I'm pretty enough, then he'll believe this gospel that I'm telling him about. Maybe if I dress a certain way, he'll be proud of me, or he'll love me more, he'll pay more attention to me. And the list goes on. And Peter is saying, no, don't do that. He's saying, don't let your focus be on perfection in those things, always being perfectly put together and consumed with how you look. Peter's saying, no, that's what the world wants you to do. That's what a worldly woman does, not one who follows Christ. Instead, let your beauty be revealed through a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, it's important to note what we mean by a gentle and quiet spirit. I feel like there's one of these lines in every single verse. I do not take this to be a personality trait. I want to say that again. Gentle and quiet is not a personality trait, but a condition of the soul. As the church then did, and so we do today, we have women all across the spectrum concerning personality. Some are naturally more fiery. Some will naturally just go with the flow. That's as far as I'm going in categorizing you, all right? But think with me here. Remember what we read from chapter 2. Think with me here of the context of who Peter is writing to. Sojourners, exiles, those who are living under the probability and expectation of persecution. These women have to be bold in their faith, strong in their faith to be married to an unbelieving husband in that context. So the gentle and quiet spirit that defines a beautiful woman of God, that is a woman who is precious in God's sight. What defines her is a gentle and quiet spirit that reveals itself, it shows itself, it manifests itself through a supreme hope in God above all else. That is what defines her. That is a condition of the soul. So what the text is calling you women to, those of you who are fiery and those of you who are more go with the flow, is for your hope to be so steadfastly rooted in God that it produces in you a tranquil soul, a peaceful soul, a soul that is at rest in her Savior. And those qualities are what make you beautiful, not what the world says, not what the world says. That's what Peter means by a gentle and quiet spirit. 
a woman whose heart is at peace. She has an inner tranquility that reveals her to be beautiful. So you're going to have strong opinions, of course. You're going to have a strong personality, of course. But don't let those traits cause you to miss what Peter is commending for your soul. The type of beauty that is of great worth in God's sight. Peter calls it imperishable. This means it doesn't fade away. It doesn't go away with age. Think of what the culture puts forth. Every single thing is to keep you looking young. But he's saying this imperishable beauty, this quality about you, never fades away. Never fades away. And what is uh, beautiful about this woman and this adornment that does not fade is that her hope is in her Savior. This takes us to point number three. Hope as the means of holiness. Hope as the means of holiness. Verse five, for in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. As I said previously, what makes a woman's adornment beautiful is her confidence and her hope in God. Come what may, whatever the world brings to her, whatever the culture is telling her, she is resolved in her hope in God. And now Peter, he gave us the command, and now he's going to give us an illustration by appealing to the holy women in the Old Testament, particularly Sarah, who adorned themselves in this way. Peter quotes the story of Sarah calling Abraham Lord. Husbands, do not elbow your wife in this moment, all right? This term was a cultural term in the ancient Near East for respect that Sarah used to embody a position of submission. It was similar to a sir today. But do you remember when in the Old Testament Sarah called Abraham Lord? It's found in Genesis 18, after the three angels appeared to Abraham. Let me read it for you, starting in verse 10. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? This is fascinating to me. Think on this for a moment. Peter doesn't use any of the examples of Sarah's submission to Abraham that she's known for. When he had her go along with being his sister to fool Abimelech in that whole weird situation, or when she up and followed him to a new land because God had promised him something. No, Peter pulls out an example from a story where her calling Abraham Lord isn't even the main point. It's more of a throwaway comment. But what Peter is showing is that even in this throwaway comment, in the middle of everyday life, her attitude and posture was one of respect and admiration towards her husband. So Christian wife, is that true of you? Is that true in everyday life? In the everyday conversations you have with others and how you talk about your husband? Is it a tone of respect and admiration and of building him up? Simply put, it's the golden rule. Do you talk about him with others in the same way you would hope that he would talk about you with others? And what Peter tells us, though, is what characterized these women, these holy women of the Old Testament, what characterized them was their hope. Their hope in God above all. So this is important. A Christian woman doesn't put her hope in her husband or the prospect of getting a husband. She does not put her hope in being a mother or the prospect of one day being a mother. She does not put her hope in her appearance, in her job, in her personality, her friends, her family, her health, or anything else under the sun. A Christian woman, a woman of God, puts her hope in God alone, and because of that, she is able to live a holy life. 
I love what Proverbs 31 has to say about this woman. Verse 25, strength and honor are her clothing, and she can laugh at the time to come. She can laugh at what is to come because her hope is in God. Mountaintop or valley, her hope is in God. Her hope is in her good and sovereign Lord. So is this true of you wives? Is this true of all of us really as Christians? Or does anxiousness and fear describe who you are? Is our hope in God or does our hope in God wax and wane depending upon our circumstances? Every day you will have to fight for that hope to be true of you. Every single day you are under attack. But what's uniquely tied in with this posture of hope is that of fearlessness. Really, point three and point four go hand in hand. This is our last point. Fearlessness no matter the circumstances. Fearlessness no matter the circumstances. Allow me to read these last two verses because really we need to see how the hope that defines the woman of God is fueled by a resolve to not fear. Verse 5, I'll read it again. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You, wife, you, Christian woman, have become her children when you do what is good and you do not fear any intimidation. A hope in God above all else will produce in you a fearlessness that adds to your beauty. Peter says that you have become children of Sarah when you do what is right and you do not fear. This is another way of saying children of Abraham or children of the covenant like Paul would use elsewhere. Meaning that you, wife, you Christian woman, are a part of God's family when you do these things. When you show yourself to have a hope in him, you show yourself to not be fearful. That is, you do what is right and you don't fear any intimidation. And what was the intimidation for those early Christian women? It was to turn away from their faith. Their husbands aren't believers. That's a hard, hard position to be in. He's saying, you show yourself to have a firm hope in God when you do not fear. It is, as we read from Proverbs 31, this woman does not fear the future, but laughs at it. She is reverent, and that is truly fearful of the only one that matters, God himself. She's not marked by anxiety, not marked by a fear of events and circumstances that are either in her control or outside of it. She trusts God. Her supreme hope in God above all else has produced in her a beautiful fearlessness that leads to confidence and assurance, inner peace, love, joy, so much more. She is a gift not only to her husband, but to her church family as well. She is fearless. She is bold. She is gentle and quiet in spirit. She is confident in God and confident in what he says to be true about her. And she's not swayed by the culture to believe a lie. Her adornment is recognized not just in her physical beauty, but in her spiritual beauty. So as we close, allow me to ask an application question from each point. Husbands, your turn is next week. So you better be here. Four of them, one from each question. First, wives, do you seek to actively affirm and encourage your husband in his role as the spiritual leader of your home? Or over the months and the years, have you steadily been undermining it? Women, do you seek to cultivate an adornment of spiritual beauty, a gentle and quiet spirit that is precious in God's sight, that is grounded upon a hope in God that produces in you fearlessness? Or is your focus solely caught up in the external? 
Christian women and really all of us, is your hope in God above all else? Or are you easily swayed to place it in something else or someone else? And lastly, Christian women, does fearlessness describe you? Do you laugh at what might come because your confidence and assurance are found in the sovereign Lord of the universe? The one who knows the beginning from the end, who has numbered your days, and he calls you into fellowship with him. When you believe in that God, when you place your hope and your faith in that God, it produces in you a fearlessness. So the good news in all of this is that we're not called to live out the Christian life alone. For the wife who's here and she feels like she is floundering, to the husband who feels as if he is failing, and to all of us in here who recognize that we fall short. The good news is the same this week as it will be next week. Our gracious God, through his son Jesus Christ, has made a way for us to be reconciled to him by placing our faith and our trust and our belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, that faith unites us to Christ and allows us to live out our God-given callings and roles as the ambassadors of his kingdom. So we won't do it perfectly. Men, women, wives, husbands, we all, fa- we all fail. But praise God, praise God for repentance that leads to life and the forgiveness that is found only in Jesus Christ. Would we as his sons and daughters draw near to him for our strength our encouragement, and our comfort. Would you pray with me? Father, I praise you and I thank you for your word. I thank you that it transcends cultures and boundaries and it speaks to us here today. Father, I pray particularly for our marriages. They are under attack nonstop. And I pray that as we looked at the role and the responsibility of a Christian wife this morning, that if there is a, a, a woman here, a wife here, who's encouraged by that, may she be encouraged. If she is convicted, Father, may she repent. I pray as well that husbands would recognize that leading is no passive endeavor, as we'll look at next week. I pray, God, more than anything, that the marriages in Christ's community would be marked by and identified by repentance. We'd be marked by a spirit of humility. We thank you for your word, and we praise you for it. Thank you for your son as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.